I love them. I don't care what anybody thinks. I love the Beatles for them, and I'll always love them. Even when I'm 105 and an old grandmother, I'll love them. Hello, everybody, and I hope you all are doing well. Welcome back to the second amazing season of the She Loves You podcast. We have made it so far, you guys, and I'm so, so excited to bring you this amazing first episode that we have this season. But before I let you know who my guest is today, I'd like to just kind of reiterate and I guess kind of let you in on some info on to what this, you know, upcoming second season is going to be all about. So our previous season, we talked about everything Beatle Wives, their lives, their influence on the Beatles, and why they're so important and why their stories are so important. And I hope to continue doing this with all women of the Beatles, but for specifically this season, I am going to do the girlfriends of the Beatles. So it could be anyone ranging from before they were a Beatle to after their Beatle years and, and all, everything in between. So it should be so much fun because we have an array of women. I mean, there's just so many women to talk about in that sphere, but this season is going to be so much fun and you're going to get to hear from, you know, women that were actresses, women that were singers, women that were even just writers, you know, any anything that we can figure out and um, it'll be so much fun. So thank you all for, whoever, you know, whoever has been listening, thank you to everybody because this has been such an amazing project to do and I, I really couldn't thank, every, any, you know, everybody else who has been able to listen. I, I just really appreciate it. Um, but anyway, I will stop babbling because today I am so excited to introduce our fabulous guest. She is the author of the amazing John Lennon uh, series, and it is the first narrative uh, book series on the life of John Lennon. And it's, you know, she's the first, so she, you know, she can claim that title, um, which is amazing because it's a nine volume series that, you know, I cannot wait to just devour all these books once they all come out. I've been devouring the first one and I can tell you it's amazing amazing you guys um she is also the uh one of the co-hosts of the she said she said podcasts and is a frequent uh member of the panel at beatles fest and is also the uh, blogger for beatles fest and i'm pretty sure most of you know this lady because she's just amazing but i would like to introduce to all of you who don't miss jude kessler um yeah, so here she is. She's incredible. And um, we're going to just talk about so many things about John and the women in John's life and particularly research and what that entails when you're talking about someone's life and writing about it, you know, because I think a lot of the times we think that these Beatle biographies, they can sometimes get lost, I think, in the information. And oftentimes we don't really know where our sources are coming from. But the thing about Jude, and I'll, you know, she'll explain herself uh, later, but is she really took the time. She spent over 20 years of her life just researching John, and she took the time to fact check and interviewed everybody under the sun that knew John, you know, friends of John, his family, uh, you know, co-workers, anybody that was around him, and she's just excellent. So hi, Jude. How are you doing today? Natalia, and I have to tell everybody, I'm so excited to be here. Um, Natalia did not write and ask me to be on the show. I heard her <laughs> podcast and was so impressed with it that I wrote to my agent, Nicole Michael, at 910 PR and said, could you get me on Natalia's show? So 
I really appreciate you having me on. Um, what you do is incredible. Um, I've listened to several of your podcasts over the last week. I followed it in the past, but I really wanted to get in my head your format and how you do things. And it is really impressive. You do your research and you know your topic. Oh, um, thank you for having me on your show. Oh, no, it's honestly like such an honor to have you on here. But, you know, funny, I was remembering this is not the first time we've met because we have met at the fest back in, I think, 2019. Right before the pandemic. Right before the pandemic. Yeah. 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 We met in person because I think we spoke on social media before then, but we met in person and it was so great because I think I actually bought your book that day as well. The first of the series. And you signed it and it was just, it was so great. So yeah, technically this is not our first meeting, but I guess no, the first no. long chat that we're going to have is the millions. <laughs> We've already discovered we have so many things in common. Oh. In a world of non-readers, I have found another reader. Oh, <laughs> it's, and it's very rare to find that, I, I must say. So I'm, I'm so thankful that you, you do read because uh, I think a lot of people don't anymore. And it, it's kind of, it makes me a little sad just because I think books are the best way to yeah. learn about things and just I mean even even just things you would have never thought you'd learn I think oh that's right Emily Dickinson there is no frigate like a book oh yeah you lands away I mean in the last two years because I have two uh serious autoimmune diseases I haven't been able to get out and do it everybody else is you know my husband goes in stores and goes to see his family and and I'm stuck in the house but I have a ship that takes me lands away and that is a book and really that kind of segues into the john lennon series because what i had hoped to do very naively 35 years ago was to tell john's story mm-hmm. as a novel so people would read it as a novel but it wouldn't be historical fiction it would be historical narrative the way that thucydides right. gave the story of the peloponnesian war so you're reading fact but you're reading it in story form. And naively in that first book that you read should have been there, volume one, I didn't realize that there was a, such a thing as um, fan fiction. I didn't know people made stories up about the Beatles, like what if John had lived or what if Elvis had decided to join the Beatles. Right, or- right. <laughs> so I didn't realize that people might think this wasn't true. So I put at the end of every chapter of my sources, but I did not, footnote each sentence so they're like oh she's making that up so then with book two shivering inside which is 61 to 63 right. i put about 400 footnotes and i thought well <laughs> that'll get it and then people were still like no how do you know that they <laughs> fried chicken instead of a hamburger well because i talked to the guy that delivered the food right you should have put that in there right so i started that book had like 1600 footnotes and they still Jeez. were like well <laughs> Oh, that Sid Bernstein stood next to Brian on the left-hand side of the field, just below John's feet. And how do you know that Brian said, I hope we can get them out of here alive, which is exactly what Brian said. So then I went to 4,400 footnotes and the last (laughs) book had 5,000 footnotes, realizing every single sentence almost has to be documented with full 20 people, you know, not just one source, but 20 sources that said it so that people can understand it's not made up. It's slow. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that process must just be like so harrowing and, you know, going through all of those sources and making sure every bit, be, and, you, know, you know what, and I think everyone that's listening, this is why I think Jude is the John Lennon expert. I, I call her the John Lennon expert because truly, I mean, this is, I think, the kind of work that needs to be done when we're talking about someone particularly and particularly their life because I think the thing about it is, um, I, I, you know, the John Lennon myth and the John Lennon persona, it's gotten so lost in the, in the modern age that we oftentimes just think of him as one way. But I think, you know, John was this whole person. And I think when we're talking about a whole person, there's layers and there's nuance. And that's exactly what your series does. I think it brings to light, I think, who John was and, you know, who, I mean, accurately, I think who he probably most likely was in real life. And I think that's why your series is so needed. And I just love that it's in this narrative format because you're not reading the typical Beatles biography that's like, John uh, lived with Zant Mimi for a time. Okay. Then he went to art college. Then he went, the, you know, it skips a lot, but yours is just this book and you're reading about someone's life and it, it feels like a fiction book, but it's, it's not, you know, most of it is true. All of it is true. So it's well, You have fascinating. to be really careful, especially after John death yeah people started to make him a saint yeah. wearing a white suit with a little bit of a halo right. and definitely a white dove on the shoulder instead of the pirate's parrot that he probably right. would have preferred to have right right son of a son of a sailor he the bad boy that wore leather and screamed at the audience and cheated on his girlfriend right right and that that guy got lost and instead we had the peacenik that wanted <laughs> right. to make the world better. Okay, he's both of those things. He's he's not always a good person. Sometimes he's not nice at all. I mean, every time I hear him saying I'm in love for the first time, I scream jerk because yeah, me too. wasn't in love for the first time. And that was rude. And that was hurtful to Cynthia. And I don't care what you feel. You don't hurt someone else's feelings. Right, like right. That. Absolutely. He did nothing to deserve it. But he was also the guy that realized that um, Phyllis, Cynthia's best friend, would get on the bus, the same place that he got on the bus to go to Liverpool College of Art, and she would give her money to get on the bus, and then she would never eat lunch. And he figured out it's because she couldn't afford both. So she got on the bus stop after him, so he started paying for her way on the bus, not telling anyone. She figured it out so she could eat lunch. I mean, it, yeah. there was a good side there yeah. was the bad side. So yeah. yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, it, it's a balanced person and it's a nuanced person. And I think this is why, like, I keep, I keep loving your, you know, series, but it's, you know, I think that's just why I think I love your series so much. And frankly, I've, I've always been, I mean, I think this is maybe the cynical side of me, but I, I tend not to actually really read a lot of Beatle biographies. It's sort of something people are surprised to hear when I tell them that mainly because I, unless I really know that the person was there, and they are writing about their personal hand, like firsthand experiences. It's not necessarily that I don't trust Beatle biographers. I think they do their work, obviously, but I think it's just difficult to really kind of take away the truth from the salacious, I think, sometimes because a lot of the times you can make up things or you can kind of assume that something happened, but it's not really happened. So I tend to read more memoirs when it comes to sort of music and around music and, and all that. Um, and, and really, I, I, I trust you wholeheartedly. I think you're one of the few Beatle authors that I could always just trust. And, and, and I love that about it. You got to keep an open mind because when yeah. I was working on uh, Should Have Known Better, 
um, I came across Ivor Davis, who mm. toured with the Beatles in 1964. And for our listeners, he was the only journalist that toured with the Beatles from day one to day end. Right. Others jumped on and off the tour for various reasons. Right. He had other commitments and they were there for part of it, but he was there for the whole time. So he says that the Beatles did not smoke marijuana uh, <laughs> with Bob Dylan at the Delmonico. And I was like, what? because everybody else in the world says right. they did. So I emailed him and said, can we talk about this? And he said, sure. So we talked on the phone and he said, listen to me. Brian Epstein was the most scrupulous man I ever met. <laughs> At the Delmonico, that's the 29th of August. They've got another month. They've got up to the 21st of September on tour. Right. If they get caught and their policemen, I, I was there, he says, in the Delmonico, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of policemen. If they get caught smoking marijuana, people can smell it. You can jam yeah, all the yeah. out if you want to under the door. If they had gotten caught, that would have been the end of the tour. Right. It would, and he would never have allowed that. He said, now, they did smoke marijuana with Bob Dylan, but they did it at the Riviera Idlewild. Uh -huh. On the last night of the tour, I watched Bob Dylan come in with a rucksack on his back. I saw them go into the hotel, into a room adjacent to where all of us journalists were sitting out there. Right. We could all smell it. They came out giggling and laughing and trying that <laughs> normal, but they weren't. And he said, it happened. It's not that it didn't happen. It's just that the wrong New York. When Paul says we smoked in New York, they were in New York. Right. It's just that it was two weeks later, two weeks later, so you have to go, as you say, back to the source, back to the people who were there. And right. it makes all the difference. Oh, absolutely. Um, and that that's so funny, because it's, I just imagine all those journalists kind of just sitting there wondering what is going on back there. I mean, they probably knew, yeah. but you know, just yeah. the funniness. Of, oh, yeah. Um, so I guess let's take it back to the beginning, Jude. Um, you know, when and how did you become a Beatles fan? How did this all start for you? Um, I just connected with this person. I have not talked to her in probably 50 years, no, 45 years, but a girl named Patty Holly Singer, who was in elementary school with me, she and a couple of other girls met me when I got off the bus at Horseshoe Drive Elementary. I was <laughs> nine years old. The Beatles had not yet come to America. It was December and they had one of the, it was either Swan or VJ 45s and held it up and said, these are the Beatles. <laughs> you have until recess to fall in love with one of them. <laughs> have to, to recess because number one, I was a studious little girl that worked in the library before school. Right. And I was not really boy crazy and now i've got to fall in love with someone and it's got to happen between 8 a.m and 10 30. <laughs> you know and so I, I took the record i had it on my desk and i looked at it and i ended up picking george and oh, they are yeah. uh, oh what no <laughs> so i was like okay well let me can i take the record home with me so i played it i called their big sisters being the researcher that i am right, right and said tell me about the beatles and the girls all gave me the scoop on the, the list yeah <laughs> and john is the leader beetle and he's the tough guy and he's a he's smart he's the smart beetle and blah 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 so the next day i came back to school and said well i've changed my mind it's john lennon <laughs> and they were like oh we knew it yes right. 
So that's it's that's the way it's been since that's amazing. 1963. So wow, wow. And you pretty much I get I mean you lived through all of it. I'm assuming you know Sullivan and you know like Shane and all the major events. So that's oh that's incredible. I just want to time travel one day, one even if it's one day, just to see what it's like. What day do you want to go back to? What day? Well. I think I would want not and not even necessarily a concert. I think I would want to be in a room with them like 1964. I think that era, 1964, I don't know why has always been like my favorite Beatle era just in general. So I think I'd love to just see them in that point, that point in time. Cause I think that was, you know, they were already kind of realizing what touring was like, but you know, I think they were still pretty, pretty happy about most things in, in essence, you know? Um, yeah. So I don't know. I think 1964 would be my year. I all picked out. What's but, yours? What's yours? And you know, I actually have the possibility of time travel because I don't know if you've read the Bowl Street. No, 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 no. no. Numerous people have disappeared on Bowl Street. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Some for minutes, some for days. They always come back as far as we know, right. but they always go back to the late 1960s. And that's when that underneath um transport was built that's like a corkscrew it's yeah. corkscrew. they think that has something to do with it anyway mm -hmm. that that aside if i ever do time travel i want to go back to the 5th of april 1962 because okay. that night in the cavern club the beatles came out in their leathers and performed and then at the break they went for the first time and put on their gray cashmere pocket list oh my gosh and came out and it was the girls just wept because just they cried. they'd lost them oh no all in those suits they knew the gig was up wow wow wow, wow. Leave liverpool behind right what a night to see them first the old beatles and then the, then the new ones oh six days before Stu's death mm -hmm. so john is still more of a whole person because yeah. after, after Stu, he's really broken and you know, and who wouldn't be, but that would be, that would be the day I'd choose. Oh yeah, for sure. Oh, but that's amazing. I see. I, I didn't know about that. So that to me, that's amazing. And just another discovery. Um, well, okay. So, you know, going on, you grew up, you, um, went to university and you studied history as well as, uh, writing in English. Um, how did you, decide that you wanted to start this project the john lennon series what was it about i mean john i know that john was your favorite always but you know what was it about figuring out this man's life and bringing it to life you know in a novel format what how i knew it? that the whole reason that i got 177 hours in three years and worked as hard as i did yeah. was because i knew that i wanted to write a book about someone mm -hmm. and write it the way that irving stone did his books mm -hmm. I like a novel, but Irving Stone spent 12 years in Italy before he wrote his book on Michelangelo, okay. The Agony and the Ecstasy, because he wanted to walk the streets and he wanted to study the Sistine Chapel and he wanted to look at all of his sculptures and he wanted to immerse himself in the life of Michelangelo before he mm -hmm. wrote the book. So that's what I knew I wanted to do that. And when I read uh, Michener's The Origin on the life of Charles Darwin, it was thorough. It was extremely thorough and historically correct, but it was as dry as the dust <laughs> that he was digging in to get his artifacts. Right. And I thought, if people will buy a book like this about finding artifacts, <laughs> how much more exciting would a book about John Lennon be? Oh, 100%, I mean, yeah. 
you have sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Oh yeah, you got the whole, you got the rise, the the you know the fame, the fall, everything. You got everything in that yeah. you know story. And I had no idea that there was any obstacle to writing it in that format. And so I said, it took me twenty years to do the first book because I had to do all my groundwork, go to Liverpool seven times, and sit down. And we did. My husband and I would do interviews. He would take all of the notes because at that time, you know, there was no other way to do it. Right. Um, and we would talk with Bob Wooler and Alan Williams and Helen Anderson and Rod Murray and all of the yeah. odd sods and bods, as they say, <laughs> and June Furlong, all of the people that, that knew John. And it, it we put 700 miles wow. on the rental car oh, inside the city of Liverpool. Wow. Now that encompasses going out to Litherland, which isn't far for Litherland yeah. Town Hall and, and, you know, but 700 miles just photographing the places. Thank goodness it was before they all changed and they were all renewed and updated. Yeah. Yeah. So we got to see the old Dutch and oh, man, yeah see yeah. the grapes before they remodeled it when it right. still had the old fireplace with the blue delft oh yeah yeah it was, it, it was a it was a fun way of doing research but i did the research and then finally finally after 20 years uh put the book the first book out so wow been doing it ever since i have interviews scheduled with people all the time to get <laughs> their stories right now i'm writing the 1965 north american tour and i'm trying to talk to one person in every city oh my gosh wow there you yeah. know yeah 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 not, not just what the books say but what the real people the, say the people that experienced it right yeah i went i went to liverpool uh, 2019 as well actually i think it was the year of the fest and oh my god it was amazing but i i do know that a lot of things have been you know sort of changed or demolished or all that so you're very lucky that you got to see it the before you know before the yeah. after um but yeah that's another aspect that's you know, as I've mentioned, you've interviewed possibly everybody there is to know when it comes to John Lennon and, and you've spoken to some amazing people. And I just admire that so much because they're the, they're the source. They are the people that knew him the best and were around him as the most. And you got to speak to, like you've mentioned, you spoke with Bob Blake Wooler, you spoke with May Pang of, of a lot of people, which I, we'll talk about a little later when we talk about the women, but, um, you know, it's amazing. And specifically John's sister, Julia, which I know she's uh, a dear friend of yours and just seems like a very lovely person. What was it like meeting her? I, I feel like she was sort of, besides maybe, you know, May Pang who lived with John, I, I feel like Julia was sort of, even though obviously she was very young when a lot of things happened, she seems like the closest to John in the sense that they were siblings. And I think that connection is very strong. What was it like meeting someone like her very intimately? She, like Julia, yeah, we've, met in person a couple of times and then about a year ago we had a very lengthy um interview on she said she said yeah. and she was very forthcoming and here's the thing about julia julia is so much like john <laughs> she doesn't want to talk about something she isn't going to sugarcoat it right. she's like we're not talking about that oh wow 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 yeah yeah i mean she just she can either be so 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 sweet or she can say no not no. do and i respect that because you know where she's coming from you know what i don't trust is people that sugarcoat everything but right. by, you know she is very trustworthy you know what she's telling you is factual mm -hmm. and just listening to her tell the story of 
her aunt calling her in right before her aunt's death and saying, okay, I want you to sit down. I'm getting ready to tell you the story of why your mom gave John up. Oh, and goodness. to hear, which this should have been told ages ago, it would have changed. Well, we wouldn't be here today. Right. Because John would have known that his mother loved him and he wouldn't have hungered for her or failed for her at the microphones of the world. He would have done something else. But because he felt like he had been abandoned and she didn't love him and he had to prove that he was good enough and smart enough and successful enough, he spent his life, half of what I say is meaningless, but I say it just to reach you, Julia. Trying to reach her. Okay. But he doesn't, he doesn't know that Pop Stanley and Mimi conspired. I mean, they'd already had in the first book that you read, they've already had social services come out. Yes. Yes. I remember. (laughs) Because they don't have a bed for John and he's sleeping in the bed with Julia and John Dykins. And -hmm. because he's getting in trouble at school. He's jumping out from under the stairs and scaring Dolly Hipshaw's <laughs> children and he's not behaving. And, and the headmaster says he's smart as a needle or sharp as a needle, but he won't behave. Right. They step in and say, you either give him willingly to us or we will have him taken away. Wow, and yeah. she doesn't want him to go through the trauma and so when she goes to get him from Fred and brings him back to Liverpool, she takes him straight to Mimi's house, leaves him. He goes in the backyard to play with Sally, the dog, says to her, you're not going to leave me, are you? And she said, no. And then she does, which is yeah. the whole entire tell me why in a nutshell. You go back and listen Absolutely. to tell me why. It's, that's the story. Oh, yeah. Tell me why you lied. You know, tell me why you cried. I'm sure she was crying yeah. and why you lied to me, you know, but to hear Julia tell this story of how her mother would sit in the family room and play my son, John, and cry and cry and cry and cry and how much she longed for him and how right. excited she was when they reunited after Uncle George died right. and they became, you know, inseparable and that hole in her heart was filled, but John, the hole in John's heart was never filled. No. no one ever explained to him what happened. And he thought, well, my mother loves her, her daughters. Yeah. She didn't abandon them, Yeah. but she didn't want me. So it's me. I'll be a good boy. I'm sorry. All those things he sings. And Absolutely. All, oh, you yeah. know, he can't ever win her love. And, but he didn't know. So talking to Julia Baird, there were tears, there was laughter, there's respect. What she's done at Strawberry Field to turn this into a school for children that really need that opportunity. Oh, yeah. Need that opportunity. She is the everything that John loved about women. She's strong. She's smart. She's capable. She is, she's quite the lady. Oh, you know, that's a, that's a beautiful way to put it. I never really thought about that, but yeah, she's everything. I think John loved and a woman yeah. and, and it's his sister, you know, and I, I, I know that she even mentioned that he was always so loving towards her, you know, in the early days, especially. And, you know, it's, it's wonderful. I, I remember, I think seeing an interview with Julia that she did, and I think it's on YouTube, I believe. And she, I just listened, you know, I sat for an hour and I just listened to her and I just, the tears came pouring for myself. I mean, I wasn't even with her, but I just, you know, it's, it's sort of the cruel 
things of life. I think that entire situation that occurred with in John's early life and it really made him in, you know, to be who he became. But it's, it's one of those things that I just like, it just drives me crazy. And it's so like, Oh, I just get so frustrated over it. And, you know, you, you talk, you talk about it beautifully in your book as well. I mean, it's, it's so, you know, it's just tragic all around, but I well, think they weren't treated yeah. right. Those kids. No, not at all. I mean, and after Julia, the mother died, yeah. Julia and Jackie were essentially given away because John Dykins couldn't handle it. He was just right, destroyed right. by the whole thing, but they wouldn't let those children talk about their mother. Anytime they tried to bring the subject up, they would say, we're not talking about this. Right. Yeah, I know. It's, and it's, I guess it's sort of that, um, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's like the English way of doing things. You don't necessarily talk about it. You know what happened, but you don't talk about it. You keep it hidden. And, and it's just so tragic in so many ways. And, I mean, it's no wonder John ended up sort of, you know, so unstable. And, you know, we talk about, I think a lot of the times people, you know, they expected so much out of someone that couldn't even live himself, you know? So it's, it's one of those things where like, I don't know, you know, just reading, you know, the books that you do and seeing all of the pressures that they had from every single tour, every single interview, every single stage show, you know, back and forth, back and forth. I mean, it's no wonder that it would drive anybody crazy, you know, just this life and it's insane. But, but I think it paints that idea of this is why John is the way he is, you know, yeah, absolutely, in so many respects. Absolutely. You know, and it's so tragic that this little boy, he's always the yeah. little boy, he's the child inside the man, right. this little boy who never said a word right, who never did anything right, who was always in trouble with Mimi for one thing or another, when he tries to talk confidentially to someone he trusts, Maureen Cleave, about his struggle with faith and says just to a friend, well, we're more popular than Christ right now. Right. He's just talking, just off the cuff. Then you take that insecure little boy and you lift that out of context and you blast it all over the world. And then everybody hates him. And yeah. once again, no one loves him. It's right. just that people can understand he's crippled inside. He's told you who he is and and yet you still want to throw rocks at him right absolutely and i think that's also the the idea of like fame and what it does to people you know it kind of puts them on pedestals and we're supposed to see them as the moral or like the the god like figure and it's the truth is is they're human beings at the end of the day and i and i think your series specifically and captures that perfectly that this is a person and not a god figure and and i think even in in the modern era as we mentioned you know this this sort of peace symbol and you know it's not to say that he was not a peaceful person. He could be a peaceful person, but he could also be a very intense person. And I think, I think people need to realize that and make that distinction before we start assuming and start throwing rocks. Like, you know, like it's, it's sort of just one of those things, but you know. If you talk about destruction, count me out in. Right, right. I mean, and that's all of us, let's face it. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. And I think, you know, like even on this podcast, you know, I, I talk about these women and, I have to make people understand like these are actual living beings. They're not perfect. They went through experiences. They went through in intense experiences, you know, I mean, especially the women in John's life, obviously, you know, I think they have gone through more of the experiences than any other woman has. Um, I mean, all, all of them did, but I think Cynthia, May, and even Yoko to an extent, they all lived with this person that was so talented but so troubled in so many ways and would he have even been talented if he hadn't been troubled that's right 
So as an English major, you go back and you look at Wordsworth, Keats, Mm -hmm. Iron, Shelley, what do they all have in common? They're troubled. They're very troubled. Yeah. Even someone as balanced in America as Louisa May Alcott, her father was young and she, and he doesn't come home. And it is this daddy come home scenario all over again. You write from pain. You rarely write from joy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, like the best writers that we know all came from, you know, sad lives or sad homes or pain or torment or whatever it is. And I think that's also something that's like so interesting about rock music in general is we get these great talents, but most of them came from just the worst hardships that you could ever imagine. And you're thinking, how are you still able to create magic that we all love and yet in your own life you're not you know there and i think that's unfortunately why drugs and you know all the stuff comes into play so it's it's just it's really that that idea of the the tragedy can make the art it's always amazed me really i was getting ready for this show and i was thinking if i could speak to the off-duty policeman that hit julia and Mm. killed her i would say to him i know this isn't going to help your feelings any, but I want you to just tuck this away in the back of your mind. Had you not accidentally done what you did, we probably would not have the Beatles. The soundtrack for thousands and millions of people's lives. Because when he lost her that second time to death, he is compelled to write these songs. Oh, absolutely. So he has to write tell me why and the pain at the beginning of if I fell and I don't want to spoil the party and I'm a loser and nowhere man. And uh, they all spill from that moment. And so I, you know, you to look down upon earth and to see the bad things that have to happen for other roads to open up and for other paths to open up must be excruciating oh yeah definitely and that's I mean that's kind of what it all comes down to and would we have the Beatles would we not even have the Beatles you know it's just it's right. insane it's it's really insane but you know I think I I, I think I, I don't know if I really believe in fate and destiny and things but I do think things happen for a reason and even if it's you know the tragedy that ensued it it was supposed to all kind of play out the way it did really. But um, that's, that's the way I look at it really from all this. But, you know, besides all of that, we do get some amazing moments in these books that just, you know, like I make me smile and make me so happy because, you know, as we mentioned, even though John did have these intense moments and was a very hurt person on the inside, he was also very, I think, loving towards the people that were in his life. And I think, um, especially like in the early years, um, particularly I guess because we've discussed it you know Cynthia is my favorite Beatle girl and has always been my favorite Beatle girl um as I mentioned many times before she gets such a bad rap and I think your books are just highlighting the importance she that you know that she was in John's life and also the love that they both shared which is just very beautiful for those of you who have read her book and if you haven't I highly encourage you to do so because it's wonderful but um Ju just highlights their relationship in such a unique interesting way because you know we're reading it like a fiction book but it's all of this happened and it's it's so beautiful so I loved those moments of John and her together in the book and it's sort of that that I think she was sort of a good light a light in his life that that he'd received I think in a way I I think even if he didn't get his mother he got Cynthia that's sort of this amazing figure so 
what was it like having to sort of recount this story of this woman that I think Beatle history has often put down and has just yeah. cast aside? Yeah, some guy on um, Amazon wrote in his critique of book three, which is dedicated to Cynthia, she loves you. Yeah. Um, yeah the, this Kessler is in love with this Cynthia <laughs> Lennon, and I cannot wait to see the way she handles Yoko Ono, because I'm sure that she's going to crucify her. Well, of course not. History is history. You tell the truth. Right. And when I went to see the play Lennon on Broadway, I went to see it twice. Cynthia is not mentioned. She's not in the play. Wow. And wow. that is kind of what modern history has done. She has been wiped from the books as if she never existed. And it's so not true because she falls for him a good eight months before he ever asks her to dance at the end of her bash because he's been assured because you remember you're dealing with this scared little boy that does can't take rejection he's been assured that she has a crush on him and that she will in fact dance with him and in fact she wants to go out with him but when he asked her to dance and her first book says they dance to to know you is to to know him is to love him by the time yeah. Yeah, her yeah. second book, John, says they dance to a fast rocker. I'm thinking the first book is right because they had to be dancing close together for him to say, fancy going out with me sometime. Right, right, right. She, because she's totally, uh, John Lennon, she <laughs> says, well, I'm engaged to someone else. Oh, my gosh, she rejects him. And so he storms off to you crack. And we all know the story of how she follows him and waits and waits right, and waits. Right, right. And waits. He's watching her. He's facing the bar, looking at her in the mirror, can see that she's just drooling over him, but he won't acknowledge her <laughs> until she stands up to leave. And when she does, he shouts to the entire bar, didn't you know Miss Powell's a nun then? <laughs> and they look at each other and laugh and end up walking out together to go to Gambier Terrace together. But um, her story is, you have a template, and here's your template. The template is strong woman, musician, uh, out, out, out of the box, um, seashell eyes, uh, different, bohemian, and here's Cynthia, who is very few of those things. Right. Yeah, is strong woman, but she shows strong woman by having the courage and the guts to be submissive, which is hard to do because oh, every, yeah. every woman wants a voice. Oh, and absolutely. The, to suck it up and not say anything and to take a back seat takes a lot of courage, but I don't think John perceived it that way. No. She's not bohemian. She's not out of the box. She's very much in the box and she is artistic, very much so, but when given the opportunity to go to Hamburg over Easter break, rather than study for her finals at Liverpool College mm -hmm. of Art, she goes to Hamburg and then doesn't do well on her finals. Right. This is the chance for a job in what we call quote unquote real art and instead gets her teacher's degree, which to me is just as important as anything she could have done. But she, you know, she thinks she's going to teach art and then even that she gives up because right. her husband becomes famous. But she, she's so far off the template. Who fits that template? Thelma Pickles fits the right. template. Astrid Kirscher fits the template. Gloria Steinem, whom he becomes very, very good friends with. Joan Baez fits the template. Yoko is the template. Yoko is the template. Right. Exactly. So, you know, 
for, for Cynthia to have been with John as long as she was, 10 years, and to have been the center of his world and to have given him the love he needed and the peace that he needed, um, that's an incredible accomplishment because oh. she doesn't check all the boxes. Right, right, yeah. absolutely. But she loves him and he loves her. And to, when he is on the 1964 North American tour, Ivor Davis, Larry Kane, and Art Shriver, all three who were there, all three of them said he called her every single night. Aww. Just one night because they, the city was not being very nice to them at all. And instead of staying, they had a hotel room, they get on the plane and leave. So he doesn't have the opportunity to call her. But other than that, he calls every single night in Paris, 1964, when they're over there just prior to coming to America. Right. Beatles are given one day off, one day. Paul, George, and Ringo go sightseeing. And why shouldn't they? They're in Paris, you know. Right, right. John gets on a plane and flies back to London to be with him. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, you know, why would you do that if you didn't love someone? Absolutely. Why do you want to be with her? You know, and even though they have really big quarrels over things after drugs come into play. Right. Still has, there's still numerous love letters about, I'm so sorry, I screwed up. I don't know why I act the way I do, mm. you know, I mean, he really does love her. And to, to say that she doesn't belong in play at all is wrong. She is the play because when he says to her on their honeymoon night, come with me to the gig, she says, no, you go and I'll stay home and take care of the house and get oh. the apartment set up. When he says, do you want me to give this up and get a job and provide for you and the baby. She says, no, you're like those birds that fly over the Anglican cathedral out to the Irish sea. <laughs> Destined for greatness, John, fly, you yeah. know, and she has him go. So, you know, without her again, the story changes. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I love that that's, um, because a lot of times I think people, as you mentioned, they'll perceive her as very, very like not strong in her way and, and everything. So I think that's, you put it beautifully in the sense that she is strong enough to be submissive. And right. I think that's, you know, because I think like, you know, this show is, is definitely about women and, and their stories and why I think it matters. And I think choice obviously is the most important choice that women can get, that ability to choose whether we want to do something, what, what we want or don't want to do. So the ability. Right be submissive that to me is such a hard concept because I'm I'm such a personally I'm such an outspoken person and you will never shut me up that's sort of my thing <laughs> no really it's it's so true you will never shut me up so I I really admire that this woman who really as you mentioned did not fit the template was exactly the right fit for him and and I it's it's beautiful and it's a beautiful love story and for Julian and for oh Julian. yeah and for Julian she's not mousy because right before he leaves to go on the North 1965 European tour Julian spills milk on the yeah. kitchen counter and he just tears into <laughs> right. Julian I'm sure the way that Mimi tore into him you know and Cynthia comes in there grabs him up says don't you ever speak to him like that again and walks out and she doesn't tell him goodbye when he oh, leaves yeah. the European tour. So she's not mousy. She just is, she knows that in order to give him the opportunity to be who he is, she has to fill a certain role. And that Absolutely. is, I'll be here 
I won't, no matter what you're doing. And she knew what he was doing. She wasn't stupid. Right, right. No, I'm there for you. I won't leave you. You can trust me. I'm not going to abandon you. You can go in the backyard and play with your little dog, Sally. And when you come back, <laughs> I'll still be here. Yeah, right. And, it all came, it all comes back to that at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, I suppose what, with that, and, you know, we know that she lived with, or, you know, shared her life with this man for 10 whole years, almost 11, which is really in retrospect, it's amazing that they lasted as long as they did, not because there wasn't love, but just the circumstances. Um, so was it, I mean, I guess, was that process hard to have to, you know, after that relationship? And I know you're going to get into that in the later volumes, you know, after the relationship ended and kind of this new person that comes into John's life, Yoko, and he became, I think, harder in a lot of ways. On the one hand, he fell in love, but on the other hand, he was like much t harder in retrospect. Was that hard to write that section? Was it, or was it sort of just you took it as it was face value, and you were like, I just got to dissect this and see. I'm not, I'm not there yet. Not there yet? Oh, okay. I'm writing right now, and our listeners can't see this, but you can. I just the notes on <gasps> Shea Stadium. On Shea Stadium, just no. concert. Wow, it wow, is, wow. let's see, I'll tell you the whole, for, for the people that don't have the visual, <laughs> have uh, 89 typed pages of notes on Shea Stadium. Wow, wow, so, wow. But yeah, it, you know, the whole thing, that's going to be very difficult because Yoko absolutely is, the right, I think probably the, if I could pick one person that I, I would say was the right person for John, but would never have understood him well enough or tolerated him. She would have told him to, well, we can't say it, but she would <laughs> Right, right. Uh, is Astrid, because Astrid mm. is very artsy, and Astrid is the person that he loved, Julia. She's right. very, very, and Yoko is right up there, you know. It, she, Yoko does teach him some great things. For example, it always makes me want to scream bloody murder <laughs> when people say bad things about woman is the end of the world. Because John, look how far he had come from meeting right. a submissive woman who would put up with his crap and be there for him and love him no matter what to saying, we're not treating women right. We make right. them paint their face and dance. Look at the one you're with. He's done a 180 and Yoko has taught him that because in that first year that they're together, he says to her, uh, women have always served me. Right. And she's like, what? And he said, my aunt Mimi, Cynthia, I, you need to pick up my stuff. Why aren't you picking up my stuff? <laughs> Right. Why, aren't you, why aren't you making me food? Why aren't you? She said, well, if that's what you want, then there's only one answer for that. I can't be here because I can't breathe in that space. Right. She's ready to leave and he changes. So that it is a very intricate part of his life where he is moving away from John the Beatle and becoming the John of the, the solo artist of the 1970s. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, and and as you mentioned, I think Yoko taught him so much in the sense of like treating women as human right. beings and not chattel or property or, right. you know, whatever it is. So I I really love that about that relationship. I think that's the, the one thing I can confidently say is that she taught him about women. And that's right. so important because I think, yeah, you know, he misunderstood women for a long time and, and viewed them only as 
the wife or you know whatever that's it is because he wants the strong woman he wants he a strong wants, woman yeah he wants julia who dared to tell her family i'm moving in with a man i love i don't care if you approve of it or not oh, right right and i'm playing my banjo at the brookhouse pub <laughs> whether you approve of that or not and you know she was her own woman that's what he wants and yet he grows up in the 1940s in which women have a different role it is a very confusing thing for him. But the other thing is that um, Yoko is so strong that now he's dealing with an equal that she's going to be a, a co artist alongside, whereas Cynthia let him shine and took a step back. Right. And I think that it sort of begins to get into his head and he loses his confidence in himself. And then when sometime in New York City, is panned by everyone and i think it's one of his greatest it's albums. so good it's so good i love it so far ahead of its time yes i mean it's women's rights and the rights of nations to be right. not bombed and attacked by other nations and the right of people to speak out and and strong women like angela davis right it's just a brilliant brilliant but it was totally panned mm -hmm. And so he starts to lose confidence in himself and he starts to lash out again. And when right. he starts to act out and she decides to get rid of him, who's who comes in, but another woman, almost like Cynthia, a kind, encouraging, strong, smart, right. capable woman who convinces him not only to mend fences with Julia and to mend fences with Jul uh, with um, Cynthia and to mend fences with Julian and to reconnect, but to start writing music again. And, right. himself. and of course, we're talking about May Payne. Yeah. Um, so I guess, you know, that's another woman in John's life that's very important and just put aside, I think, also by Beatles history as just the affair that he had for a weekend which you know weekend what two years and a half right the weekend yeah. right um what was that like getting to meet may and and you know really trying to understand her story because i actually have read snippets of her book so i kind of have an idea but i'd like to know the whole story eventually but what was that like she first of all may is so sweet and approachable and again like julia baird because he's looking for this right. she doesn't have, have any trouble setting the record straight if you yep. get something wrong she has that strong woman element to her yep but um she we we've met several times and emailed and talked on the phone and she's just a very 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 lovely person but she's I think that Yoko underestimated how very powerful she was. Oh yeah. She first goes to New York City Community College and does quite well and gets a job as a uh, a person who would take fledgling records and and promote them at that time, you know, you before the internet, you had to go radio station to radio station and get the DJs to play these records. So she's not shy, she's not afraid of talking to strangers yeah. and getting them to do what she thinks they should do. She's persuasive. <laughs> and then Alan Klein sees her and she's hired as a receptionist at Abco Records. So she's smart, she stands out. And when John and Yoko work with her, when Yoko is doing fly, mm -hmm. um, she's exceptional. She stands out. And so she begins to work for John and Yoko. And I was doing a radio show with my friend, Lena Stagg. We yeah. do, she said, she said together. And we're talking about May, and all of a sudden a caller calls in, 
and we've never had a call. Uh -huh. call we have a number and we give it to people, but no one ever calls. Right, in. right. And I said, we've got a caller. And so she, Linus goes, well, get it. And so I did. And this voice says, hello, this is May Pang. Oh my goodness. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Scream like little girls, you know? <laughs> yeah. So she said, okay, what you're saying is not quite right. Oh. Because um, I wasn't picked by Yoko. John picked me. Oh. He had had his eye on me for quite some time. In fact, he kissed me on the elevator one time. So I'm like, okay. She said, yeah, no, John, John picked me. Wow. And what a great pick. Because if you go back to our template, she is almost all of those things. Plus, she is the gentleness and the dependability of Cynthia. Oh, yeah. He really falls in love with May. Yeah. And um, had he not gone to that Elton John concert, again, another pivot tree, <laughs> things might have been different. Had Yoko not called him and told him that she wanted him to come over and pick up some of his stuff and May begged him, please don't go. Please don't right. go. If you go over there, I will never see you again. And he goes, and it is. Yeah, it happened. That is what it is. Uh, thanks, Elton. Thanks, man. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, but you know that that's so interesting. That idea that um, you know, because I think I think the other concept is is the idea that people find it so hard to believe that John was ever in love with anybody else other than Yoko. Because I think also, unfortunately, and it's not really Yoko's fault. You know, it's it's nobody's fault. I think the myth has again surrounded that they were just like you know, could not separate and were just so in raptures with each other that it's very surprising, I think, to people to hear May's story because they just can't believe it for a right. second, you know. Um, but but I, I think it's one of those things in life and I, I, I love their story. I think it's very sweet on the one hand. Um, but it also just shows that John was very much in love with her. I mean, if if you listen to Walls and Bridges, you know he has a whole song for her, and it's 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 just so beautiful. And and I'm really I, I can't wait to do my episode on her. You know, side note for our listeners, but Great photographer, she's yeah, very she's wonderful. Artsy. She is very much into music, and again, you have that submissive and yet powerful role. You know, Mal Evans always said, "To serve is to rule." To serve <laughs> is to rule. She goes to parties with him and she knows number one, John can't see and doesn't wear his contacts a lot of times. <laughs> he can't remember things. Right. Um, you know, like lyrics. Uh, nothing terrified John Lennon more than having to lip sync. Oh, because, yeah. Oh my gosh, I've got to get all the words right. Now. I don't remember the words. <laughs> right. You know? I wrote so, them, but I don't remember them. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what they are. He's written too many and they're too complicated. Right, I'm right. The walrus. Even I can't remember I'm the walrus. Oh, neither can I. Yeah, we've sung it a zillion times. Yeah, yeah. She would stand next to him and she would hang her head down when somebody would get ready to come over. Her hair would fall into her face and she would say, it's so-and-so telling <laughs> who was coming up because that's that Cynthia role, you know, that yeah. I'm there for you no matter what happens i'm supporting you and look may pang had some hard times i mean john wasn't every night out getting drunk and right right doing you know as as history seems to always just talk about that time right 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 but but he was he was upset i mean he'd been yeah. he'd been abandoned again he'd right. been decide again right and it was an upsetting time and she was a very comforting encouraging presence right he comes back and 
you know, starts to work from 75 to 80, when he's really writing the songs that will become double fantasy and doing good things. That's a lot of her influence. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And we have her to thank for that because I, I, I don't think, I think he would have gone insane had he, had May really not been there. And same goes for Cynthia. I think if they hadn't been married, he would have gone even crazier, you know, especially if the Beatles had made it, you know, and say Cynthia wasn't in the picture, I think it would have been just pandemonium. It would have been insane. Um, So in a way, I think I always, you know, people like to think, oh, Paul was the one that desperately wanted the marriage and the family and all this. But really when it comes down to it in a lot of ways I think John was just desperate for any sort of home because he had never really had one you know um so that's kind of how I always take it whenever it comes to the women in his life he wanted a home whether that was with Cynthia or May or Yoko you know in many ways so it's so never happy because when he was at home for a long stretch of time he would think oh, I want to go on the road and then <laughs> right. go on the road and he'd think oh I want to go home. home and the whole thing was he could not make himself happy you know nothing would work not the Beatles not fame not riches not drugs not a new wife not a peace movement right not, he just couldn't Julia was written all over his heart and it was so hard to fill that hole. A a gentleman wrote me the other day, uh, Susan Ryan, and I just did the fest blog on in my life and um, Susan, whom I had known for years, a tour guide for New York City Beatles Fab Four walking tours. She's just written Beatles uh, Fab Four Cities with Dave mm-hmm. Bedford and Richard Porter. I didn't realize she was a great writer, really great writer. It's a wonderful, wonderful blog. But um, a man wrote to me after the blog came out and he said, uh, Jude, you might not know this, but the original version, John's original lyrics to In My Life were not in my life, I love you more. It was in my life, I loved you more. Oh, no. Which fits with all the other songs, you know. Right. That Julia is written all over his heart, and he just had a hard time. Yes, he needed someone to love him. He needed a family. He needed a home to come home to, but he can't ever seem to get comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. And that's just the tragedy of, of all of it. And and I, you know, at the end of the day, she is probably the most important woman or, you know, that w- in his life. And, you know, unfortunately, even though she wasn't really in his life because tragedy ensued and, and whatnot, but Julia is always going to come back in the story. And then, and that's sort of the theme, right? In the, in the books is Julia. It always comes back to Julia, 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 Julia. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I think as we all have, I don't know if you've seen Nowhere Boy. I saw Nowhere Boy when it premiered you know, and all that. So it's it's interesting because I, I like to think that Julia was maybe not as she was portrayed. I don't know. That movie seemed to get it so wrong. And and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they tried to base it off Ju- like uh, Julia Baird's book, but it wasn't at all what... It wasn't book. at all happy with yeah, it. Yeah, I, I heard that as well. Yeah. yeah. No, it just, there's so many things that are wrong. I mean, John wasn't there when Uncle George died. Right another horrible thing that they knew he was dying and they sent him away to Scotland to his aunt's house. And when he comes back, they've already had the funeral. You can't do that to a 14 and a half year old. You, you, there has to be closure and he starts laughing and can't stop. He's goes hysterical. Yeah. You, You can't do that to someone. I, you know, I had someone, uh, another Beatles author years ago, write me and say, 
what did John Lennon have to be upset about? He was rich. He, he had hit songs. He was known all over the world. Well, he had everything to be upset about everything. because one of the quote unquote women in his life who is, he loves just like he would love a wife is his soulmate, his brother, Stu Sutcliffe. Right. And Stu, who has filled that hole in his heart for quite some time, is taken from him. Oh, yeah. And so every in every book in the John Lennon series, the next to last chapter is always Stu. Because oh. as much as Julia is in his heart, Stu, and the Beatles never talk about Stu. They don't bring him up. They know not to. If John brings the subject up, fine. Otherwise, that is taboo he can't get over that either and it just seems like his life he was destined to lose the people that he loved and how how all of us would handle that i don't know but i mean like i mentioned he is just i mean not i don't even like to say that he's tough i think he's just he had to keep going regardless which is obviously you know now obviously we have more help when it comes to mental health and therapy and seeking you know help that you might need so it's sort of like and i know that he got the primal scream therapy thing later on but i think i think modern therapy would have just benefited him in every but maybe would let him go yeah maybe would let him go she yeah. would have said, let's not even talk about it. Let's I mean, talk about it. Here's this little boy that says, Aunt Mimi, why are you here for me every day when I get home from school? She used to go to the elementary school and walk him home. And she would say, it's my duty to do so. Well, right. That's not what I wanted to hear. Right, right. Uh, yeah, no, and that's that's so interesting, especially with Stu, because I think a lot of people seem to forget that this was like someone in John's life that meant so much to him. And his death was probably like the nail on the cot. That was the one that, you know, sent it all into overdrive. So it's, it's, it's great that, well, I mean, I guess it's not great, but it's, it's good that we are recounting all of the people that unfortunately are not with us anymore and had this effect on John. And it's sort of like now that John's gone, I wonder if he got to reconnect. I mean, I don't know if, my viewers or anything believe in spirituality but i'd like to think that that connection is there again and you know maybe there's some closure in a lot of things so it's sort of reconciling i always think about it yeah reconciliation for sure working it all out um you know i think of cynthia katie perry's song wide awake um i i think that's really what she tried to say at the end of john that i've woken i've fallen from cloud nine yeah my eyes are now open and I probably wouldn't do it again. And that's how she ends the book, John. Yes, I, yes. I had it all to do over. But I think if we got her to be quite honest, she never stopped loving John. No, not for a second. I think that love that she had for him was till the end of her life. And, and you know, she married and was very happy in her marriage. And, you know, it's lovely. But I think that John was always in her heart and was the yeah. love of her life in a lot of ways. Uh, and, and in a way, I've, I was talking about this with a friend because we're always just talking about it. But I think one of the reasons that I think it was easier for John to be so cruel to her was because I think it was so upsetting for him that this marriage, this relationship that he had had since he was 17 years old right. was ending the way it was. And I really, you know, 
the period we talk about the period of like meeting Yoko sixty six onward. I really, in in my opinion, and a lot of others that I've been talking to, we all sort of think that John was trying so hard in that marriage. He was trying to keep it together. He was, you know, 67 that year was him trying. He was going to the Greek island, trying to go on vacations together, making it, you know, about the family and trying, you know, he was trying desperately to hold on because I think he knew it was coming to an end shortly, you know, and then Cynthia talks about the end. She couldn't board the train, right? You know, she knew that was the end, but, you know, it's sort of one of those things where he tried so hard. And I think later on down the line at the divorce, it was easier for him to just, you know, cast it aside and say, okay, I'm going to, I'd rather be cruel than face what's going on and face that. He says he's going to commit suicide. He said at one point he really thought about committing suicide. He was severely depressed and all these people that take your blues and say, Oh, it's just a, um, like a bluesy song. Yeah. The template and right. Right. No, no. He's singing you. Oh, he yeah. Wants to die. He said, I wanted to commit suicide. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This, the one relationship that had lasted and that he could depend on is now dissolving. Oh, yeah. And it was a very, and he's going to lose Julian in it too. Yeah. And it is a very, very painful, upsetting time. And he, he he's cruel to her. That's true. He was cruel to Stu, you, you know, because. Yeah. When he starts to feel the like love is leaving again, yeah. like when Stu said he was going to stay in Hamburg and stay with Astrid and not be in the band any longer, then okay, somebody else has abandoned me. Yep. And and even death, even death, you left me again. Right. Right. So um, it is. It's a very difficult time. You're right. Oh, absolutely. And I think even with you know, May after that relationship ended, it's not as if he didn't stop talking to her, you know, I think that's also the misconception that they just never spoke again. Oh, they saw each other other all the time, all the time, (laughs) all the time. So it's, it's, you know, again, it's this complexity about it doesn't just end as though, you know, because I think Beatle books are like, okay, it ended and they never saw each other. You know, it's the reality is very much different. Um, and I, and I, you know, you, you illustrate that perfectly. And, and I'm sure you're going to do a wonderful job once you get to the later volumes. And I cannot wait to read those because I love it all so far, but those later volumes are going to be really interesting to dissect and read about. Um, but yeah, I, I think what's great is you know, we talk about the intimate women in his life, but we also have like the friends and the family and, you know, which I'm going to, it's going to be great to do those episodes too, you know, and he'll do little things like, as you mentioned for Phyllis or, you know, even for Scylla Black, right. He got her the audition with Brian Epstein. And that was, that's such a wonderful, loving thing he did for a dear friend that, you know, it just shows that he was able to just love you as much as he could when he did, you know. Frida, you need to get Frida. Frida. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, he, Frida is as strong as John. There's no doubt about it. (laughs) I had Frida one time at the Grammy Museum Beatles Symposium in 2016, and she, it was time for her to go on stage to be interviewed. And um, she was signing a book and talking to someone. I said, Frida, it's time. And so she kind of gave me the hand and then she finished talking to those people and then it, it was you know somebody else came up and yeah. like Frida it, we gotta go you're expected <laughs> and so she breaks away finally and as we're walking to the stage she says don't ever interrupt me again oh she is strong she is honest she is trustworthy and she 
at one point, John had fired her. Yeah. She makes him get down on his knees and <laughs> back. So they have a very close and interesting relationship. As well. Yeah. I really hope to get her. Well, I mean, I don't know. It would be a dream to have her on the show, but I mean, just telling her story is going to be great. Um, for those of you who haven't seen the documentary, Good Old Frida, I highly recommend you do. She was the Beatles fan club secretary and Brian Epstein's assistant for many, many years. And she lived an incredible life and has incredible experiences. And, you know, as you say, she's so strong for being able to have put up with these crazy men and, and everything that ensued, really. Yeah, and they expected her to do so much. Yeah. Like Ringo comes to her in the very early days and says, what am I going to do with all of this fan mail? Right. What am I going to do? And she's like, you're going to answer it. You're going to answer all of them, yeah. What? You know, so she was the perfect person to be the fan club secretary. And I don't mean she isn't. She's extremely loving. My parents never let me go see the Beatles or join the Beatles fan club. Wow. Because they were hoodlums. <laughs> she, for my birthday in 2000, maybe 17, sent me the unofficial Beatles fan. Oh, that's so sweet. She is a lovely, lovely person, but she is nobody's fool. No. And um, she, her story is so interesting. And that movie, Good Old Frida, restores your faith in mankind. If yes. you've gotten to the point where you think, oh man, everything is just bad. <laughs> watch that film and you realize there are people with integrity. Oh, so. oh, a hundred percent. And, you know, in watching that she was, I mean, really in charge of also, you know, keeping secrets and making sure that they looked presentable, which I think people really don't think about when they're talking about celebrities. It's you, there's an image you have to keep up. And she knew a lot was going on. She had the most, you know, she's such integrity, as you mentioned, I mean, just full of it. And she considered them family and they considered her family. So that, that bond and that trust, I think was always there. And, you know, um, it's just, her story is incredible. So all of you go watch it because it's, it's just so good. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, it's wonderful. Like, as I mentioned, just talking about these women in John's life and, um, you know, this, this project of mine has been so much fun because I'm learning so much I didn't know. And it'll be interesting, as I mentioned, season two to talk about John's girlfriends, even before Cynthia, and we get like the first girlfriend or Phil or on Thelma Pickles or, you know, like all these women. So it's, it's going to be so much fun to dissect that as well, because you can get yeah. Thelma. I have tried to talk to Thelma for years <laughs> and years and she is a very successful textile artist okay um as she as you know she married roger mcguff uh and yes he is um a really a strong woman interesting woman so you you have a great year ahead of you oh i'm i'm very excited but um so and you can con i mean what was it you can contact her or she just kind of flat out said no if you don't mind me asking of course no, I, yeah. back in the early days when i was doing my research for yeah. one i mean I hadn't, I wasn't on the internet anywhere, right, right. but I hadn't published anything. And I remember calling Jim Christie when mm. he and Cynthia were living on the Isle of Man. And I was like, oh, well, I'm coming to Liverpool. I would very much like to sit down with Cynthia. And he said, well, it'll be a thousand dollars a day. I was uh -huh. like, okay, well, I, I, I don't have I can't pay that. Yeah. And he, I said, what about if I gave her a percentage of my book when it comes out? And he's like, well, how do we know that your book is even going to sell? Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay. I said, well, I've been invited to the premiere of Backbeat, the, and you know the red carpet, right, part, right, 
so I know you're going to that as well. Could we get together that evening? He's like, oh, well, if you've been invited to the red carpet party, you must be someone and you must <laughs> right. be very, very suspicious. And I think Beatles people uh, like Phyllis and, and uh, Thelma, are very protective. They're oh, protective absolutely. Yeah, the and they're protective of the story, and you have to win their trust. Absolutely. And, you know that. Yeah, that, that was a. And the women are more protective than the men are. I mean, right. I could easily talk to people from the blue coat school, like right. Brian Biggs, who knew Stu really well. But the women are very protective of what they know, and that's a good thing. Oh yes, I. I mean, w women got to stick together, right? That idea. Um, but that, that is interesting that men will be more open with whatever it is, but, yeah. but you know, of course there's that you got to protect and you got to make sure that it's protected. And, um, especially I think with like Cynthia's story, because it's so, it's very specific. And I think so many people got it wrong that she's just, she must've been so tired of hearing it told over and over again, but, but yeah. Um, and that's, I guess that's another, you bring up a good point. There wasn't a lot of internet. And I think with my research in particular, I got asked this, um, one time, you know, like, how do you find all of this? The internet, even though most of the time it's not super reliable, a lot of the times it gets me places. Even if I don't necessarily like what's said, it can at least get, lead me to a source. And it is, it has been a real big help. And I think that's sort of the advantage, even though I hate saying that word, but I think now there's just so much more ability of getting this information and it's, it's yeah, really I mean, helped. Yeah. The other night I was researching the Wells Fargo because various authors say it was a car, it was a truck, <laughs> it was a van. So I wanted to find out exactly what it was. Right, and right. I typed in Wells Fargo agents who transported Beatles to Shea Stadium 1965. An article from their local newspaper comes up with a photo of them with their full names and the fact that Jack Lee's daughter, who was nine years old, Joanne, wanted her father to take a Beatles fanzine and get all four Beatles oh, to sign wow. it. And he did. There's a photograph of the fanzine. There's the blue and yellow Wells Fargo truck, <laughs> the number of the truck. None of that we could have gotten before. Right. So you do find jewels of information. Oh, absolutely. Even, you know, and as all of you know, probably by now and you, I run the Cynthia Lennon daily Instagram page and I just sort of, I like to get these factual information. And like just the other day, I found a great photo of them and uh, it was in 1967 and I think they were on a vacation somewhere. But the thing is, is for years on the internet, we all thought they went to Liverpool on that vacation, but it turns out I think they went to Surrey instead. And it's stuff like that, that you're like, oh, well now I know, like, thank goodness that we're finding all of this out. So it's, it's pretty amazing. Ever come across it? I would love to know because mm -hmm. when he takes her in September of 1963 mm -hmm. to two on her on uh, three on their vacation to Paris on their right. to Paris, she says she calls it my short honeymoon, <laughs> and yet John stays in Paris for two weeks. On day four, she details what they do every single day for the first four days, yeah. like what they do every day. But on day four, all information ceases. <gasps> Brian arrives in Paris on that day. And it is my guess that Cynthia goes home at that point because Julia yeah. is very small, right, right, right. six months old. And she goes home and I think John and Brian stay in Paris, but because of the brouhaha over the Spanish Riviera trip, oh. he does not tell anyone. 
So if you ever get documentation on that. Okay. Oh, oh, I need to look out for that. Oh, another goodie. See, this is what I'm saying. And we're always uh, theorizing with people in the Beatles community, especially on Instagram. We're always theorizing. There has to be more photos of Cynthia out there. I I just know it, you know, because there's just, I mean, it's it's impossible. And, you know, I'm sure there's home movies, but God knows if we're ever going to find those goodies. But, you know, it'll it'll happen eventually. But this is what obsessive gets us, right? We'll just. That's right. I'm jumping up and down because I've got the number of the Wells Fargo. Right. (laughs) Right, right. And then, you know, everyone looks at me like they're like, wow, you have a lot of time in your hands. And I'm like, I know. I know I do. I know I do. Um, Well, Jude, so what book, I'm so sorry, you mentioned, but I completely forgot. What book are you working on currently at the moment of the volume series? Okay. The book that just came out in October, Shades of Life Part One, is the first eight months of 1965, and yet it's 800 pages because 65 is just slam. They're going all over the world making help. They're nominated in June for the MBE. They're not going to receive it until October, but the nomination itself was a huge ordeal. Um, Paul has written yesterday the first Beatles solo song. John has all kinds of feelings about that. They go on the European tour to France, Italy, and Spain. John's second book, Spaniard in the Works, has just come out. Um, He and Cynthia move from their upstairs garret in Kenwood down Mm -hmm. into the house, and there are a lot of changes. His father appears on the doorstep of Kenwood and ends up staying three days, and that's a big ordeal. Uh, Mimi's reaction to it is a big ordeal. John buying Mimi her house, leaving Liverpool and moving to the south right along the coast of England. So much happens in that first book, but I had to stop because I'm at 800 pages. Right, right. We're only eight months in. So supposedly, and I say that because last night when I ended where I am in Shea Stadium, I'm on page 98 and they're only three days into the new book. Supposedly, this book is to take you from the day that they land in America for the 1965 North American tour up to the last note of candlestick part. Okay. Can I make it without having 2000 pages? I don't know. <laughs> um, it, you know, the, I'm midway through yeah. the series and uh, it is, it's very difficult not to write gigantic books because so much is known about those years. Right. Not a lot was known about the early years. And the more you get into the story, right. the more info there is. Yeah, I would suppose that the later years are more documented just because they were more chaotic or it was more in the mainstream, the newspapers and all that. Not to say that, you know, it wasn't before, but it was more private, right? Because, yeah. you know, I think even the, as Cynthia mentions, you didn't talk about your life, right? You know, especially as an artist, especially in the early 60s, it was very different to the late 60s when things were getting more liberal in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, but I mean, I am just amazed at what you're doing with this project and I cannot wait to keep reading all of the volumes. I'm halfway through the first one and it's, it's just so good. You know, I don't want to stop reading it, um, but it's it's so wonderful. And wh- okay, one last question and you might be able to answer this and my listeners, I don't even know if you guys know of this, but okay, so there's a restaurant in LA. It's called, I, I believe it's called Big Boys Burgers or something to do with that. And there is a Beatle booth and I've been there and the owner claims that the Beatles ate there. I, do I know if this is true? I don't know. I don't know. It was, and it was, I think, believe in LA in 64, but I cannot be sure whether it's even a truth or not. Cause my brother insists, he's like, I sure it happened. I'm like, I don't think it did, but 
does I don't he, know. Does he have a photograph? I, I can send it to you. I will send you a picture of this place in the Beatle booth because I think he took a picture of it. Did they have the Beatles there? So I don't remember. I cannot remember for the life of me if there was or not because there is a picture, like a plaque, but I don't know if it was them at the booth or just I them. you would know is Chuck Gunderson. Chuck Gunderson okay. is the guru of the Beatles North American tour 64 through 66. He wrote the most detailed book. It's called Some Fun Tonight, the backstage story of the Beatles historic North American tours, 19, no, how the Beatles rocked America, the backstage story of the Beatles North American tours, 1964 through 1966, the longest book title in the history of, <laughs> but he knows everything okay. about everything as far as the tours go. Right. They went there in 64, Chuck Gunderson would know he's very okay. friendly and will, he, he will answer your question. Yeah, because we, we went the other day and I, I, I did not even know about this booth until my brother yeah. pointed it out. And he's like, you want a fun fact? The Beatles ate there. And I was like, you're joking. He's like, no, they really did. They ate at this burger place. And I'm like, really? With all the fans and, you know, making sure that, you know, oh, they wouldn't get mobbed. Chuck and you can ask him. Yeah, I might. I might have to just to, okay. just to, yeah. just to know because I've been yeah. so curious. But um, anyway... Thank you so much, Jude. As I mentioned, your work is amazing and what you're doing is amazing. And it really brings hope in the sense of, I hope more Beatle writers are as thorough as you are. And I'm sure most of them are, but you just do an amazing job. And I, I love this series and you're bringing John Lennon, the person to life. And I really appreciate that. So thank you for Thank, thank, you, thank, you, thank you for having me on your program and I'll continue to listen to your podcast. I can't wait to hear what you have in store for us this oh, year. Yeah. I'm so excited about that. And, you know, all the listeners get ready because it's coming. So thank you again, Jude. And, you know, um, I loved having you. Thank you so much. And to all my, and to all my listeners, uh, this has been the first amazing episode of season two and I can't wait to bring you more stories in store. So thanks guys. Bye-bye.